From the Medical Republic, I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me. Welcome to the final podcast of 2022. Because the Tea Room is taking a couple of weeks breaks over the festive season, we've created an extra jam-packed long COVID special to tide you over. This episode, we look at brain fog and hair loss. You'll get an update on the parliamentary inquiry into long COVID, and I'll also spill the tea on a new long COVID diagnostic that is entering the Australian market. So pour yourself an Earl Grey or grab a coffee and settle back for a tea room break. We're starting with the neurological dysfunction commonly called brain fog. Our first guest is president of the International Society for Neurovirology, Professor Bruce Brew. He heads up, amongst other things, the Neurosciences Program at the Centre for Applied Medical Research at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. It's also the hospital that is home to possibly Australia's first long COVID clinic. Professor Bruce Brew, thank you so much for joining us today on The Tea Room. Oh, it's a pleasure. I hope I can help. Long COVID and brain fog, it's a big subject. Can you tell us a little bit about your research and what you're finding? Yes, the NeuroCOVID study is a sub-study of the ADAPT study. That's a parent research protocol. We started at the beginning of the epidemic back in 2020, started recruiting in February, March, and there were about 170 who were invited to participate. That was everyone we saw, and the large majority, about 90%, were not hospitalised, and about I think it was about 130 that agreed to participate, which meant a number of blood draws, neuropsychological testing, neurological examinations and so forth over a prospective period every few months going out to a year, but we're continuing to collect data and we've got data at two years, although they have not been analysed. So that's the structure of the study. So we've got, as I said, analysed results on 128 patients. What did we find? We found that there was brain fog, if you like, neurocognitive impairment, which occurred at various time points to differing degrees, but approximately 20% overall. There was an increase in the rate, which was statistically significant, but probably not so much. So it did go up to about 26% or so. Is that 26% of participants? Of the 128, yeah. 128 participants, right. You said it was at different time points throughout their experience of long COVID. Correct. So at one time point, it was 18%, and then at another time point, it was 24%. So it does vary according to the time point, and that may be a function of the disease itself. I guess the main thing with long COVID is to tease apart what's truly damage and irreversible versus an active process, which is causing ongoing damage versus a process which is ongoing causing damage, but also at the same time in that repair phase. So I think that's the explanation for the fluctuation in the rates. So the numbers are small, but when you compare it to larger population-based studies using electronic databases, certainly there's a discrepancy in the numbers. But the big message I tried to convey is that this study was very well conducted, so we're very rigorous, whereas with large population studies, sure, you can collect lots and lots of data and the big numbers sound very impressive, but when you drill down, the detail is not there. You yeah. can't do the detailed studies in population studies, and that's something that a lot of people forget. 
and you know you use statistical manipulations to get rid of the garbage. But I'm afraid garbage in, garbage out still holds, no matter what statistical tools you do to correct for that. So you've so, got this really robust study methodology, a smaller group, right. but still 128, and yep. you've got some rigorous methodology around that. What were some of the most significant findings apart from the, you know, the 20% on average of people experiencing neurological dysfunction? Yeah, so at, at the year time point, the vast majority did not improve. Now that may well change you know, at the later time points. So that was the first message. The second message was it is mild, the degree of brain fog. So it is a fog rather than something more opaque, but it's not something to be trivialized. And the, the message there is that about 20% of people were unable to get back to work. So it does have a significant impact. And then the third message was that Amongst all the parameters that we looked at to try to understand why this was happening, uh, there were two outcomes. One, there was immune activation, which in particular was related to something called a kynurinine pathway, which is a part of the innate immune system. So it's a response to some sort of insult, be it pathogen or something similar. And the idea of the pathway is to say to the immune system, time out, it's time to quieten down the response. So it'll bring the immune system into a tolerant state. Now, the problem is in long COVID that that induction of an immune tolerant state goes on and on and on. So normally the pathway would signal the immune system to say, time to switch off. That doesn't happen. And as a consequence, the immune system is continually overactive. And this pathway is very activated. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't just try to induce a tolerant immune system that fails. But in in the course of doing that, it produces a number of toxins, most particularly this N product called quinolinic acid. And that's what we found was the only parameter that correlated with brain fog. So that that was the only thing that correlated with cognitive impairment. And that was looking at respiratory status, whether they had mild hypoxia, whether there were other immune activation parameters that might have correlated with brain fog, including the interleukins and interference. No, No correlation, only this particular product. What does that mean for treatment or more approach? So it does, it has two consequences. One, it means we've got a potential marker and that's, that's really important to take the field forward. And it's very dynamic as a marker so that you can look at change rather easily. And then second, you've got potential therapeutic target. So you can perhaps with a bit more study try to de-escalate the degree of activation of this pathway, in particular that product. But if you can dial down the pathway activation, I think uh, you'd be in a lot better shape. Now, this this pathway is activated in other diseases, not unsurprising, because it's, it's a mechanism, as I said, to tell your immune system to switch mm-hmm. off. Which diseases? Yes. yes. So it's, a, it's not uncommon in 
a variety of brain infections or infections that affect the brain. I've spent about 35 years looking at it in, in relation to HIV disease. And then it's also been found in some of the degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, where you get a secondary immune response, likely as a consequence of a number of um, pathogens, not just infectious pathogens, but also products like amyloid and monomers and so on that switch on your immune system in the hope to clear it, but it can't clear it. And so you've got these varying signals that are occurring. It's like someone in a car where the the one foot's on the accelerator pedal and the other foot's on the brake, and uh, it's not good for the motor. What about rheumatic diseases? Is quinolinic acid present in any of those autoimmune inflammatory responses? It does present in some autoimmune diseases, that is correct. hasn't been as well studied, but it's true. Any disease where there's immune activation, you'll have to have a mechanism by which the immune system is unregulated. You don't want your immune system in hyperdrive all the time. What about chronic fatigue, ME? Yes, we looked at that. So we looked at coronavirus non-COVID controls and did not find activation of the pathway. And we also looked at ME and chronic fatigue syndrome with some colleagues in a large data set in Victoria through La Trobe University. And the signature profile was quite different. It is distinct. And in fact, we were able to come up with a sort of a signature profile that identified patients with neurocovid in about 60% of the cases. There was a combination of elevation of quinolinic acid and what's called a kinurinary tryptophan ratio. So distinctive too. Very distinct. In chronic fatigue, yeah. Correct. So if you if you use those two products together, you will identify patients with neurocovid 60% of the time. You won't get a signal for ME or chronic fatigue syndrome. You use the term neurocovid. What does that mean? It means that COVID is characterized by neurological complications, either as a as secondary opposed- phenomenon or as a primary phenomenon. As opposed to respiratory COVID or... Correct, correct, correct. And people with neurocovid, what are the chances of them experiencing a whole range of other symptoms as well? If if they have significant levels of brain fog, is that the dominant symptom? Does it pair more naturally with some other symptoms or is it absolutely random? So I'd have to caution what I say by the data are still really fairly nascent, but almost always goes with a degree of fatigue. But then there are variable combinations with other symptoms, such as cardiac abnormalities with rhythm disturbances, sometimes autonomic symptoms. What can a GP do to assist a patient with neurocovid? I think first up, the diagnosis should be secured as best as possible, and that the GP can absolutely help in documenting what the symptoms are and, and so forth, and depending on resource availability, take things further by themselves or enlist specialist support. So I think given the commonality of COVID, it's it's too easy to dismiss other disorders that may mimic, if you like, neurocovid. So I think diagnosis is important. GPs, depending on resource availability, can absolutely help in that regard. And then to a specialist as appropriate. Now, if there's if there's mild cognitive symptoms, there's a clear history of COVID and basic clinical and 
blood and image brain imaging assessments are a negative. That's probably all you need to do at a GP level in terms of assessment. And then in terms of treatment, that's the big problem. Of course, we don't have any proven treatment modalities. There are clinical trials going on, and hopefully there will be more that will try and address the issue. So I'd encourage where appropriate, patients are informed of potential clinical trials and offered that possibility for enrolment. And then I guess thirdly, it's a question of trying to help the patient in terms of symptoms, and that, that can vary accordingly. One basic rule, I guess, of the COVID management era is to really pace yourself because if you try and really push the limits too much and just crash for the next several days, if not longer, I think that sort of advice is critical and often needs to be repeated to the patient because they're keen to get better and get better quickly. So they often extend themselves when they shouldn't. So accept that the majority will get better, COVID, and neuro-COVID, some will get better. We don't know, but it's it's a longer haul process. And I think sort of recalibrating expectations and accommodating a pacing strategy is, is the best way forward. It's a time of year where there's lots of celebrations. We've got Hanukkah, we've got Christmas, we've got people coming together to celebrate the season. This is particularly demanding on someone who has brain fog and perhaps associated fatigue. Exactly. I guess there are two issues with that. One, they will find that they won't be able to participate at all or they'll be limited in their ability to participate because it just becomes too overwhelming to follow people's conversations and and participate properly. And then the other aspect is uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, but alcohol tolerance goes right down. Well, that was my next question. Can they have an eggnog or you know, a glass of celebratory champagne? Yeah, yeah. well, I, I sympathise. But uh, I didn't say no alcohol, but mm-hmm. usually their ability to consume what would be a normal amount for them is significantly compromised. It's good advice to know, particularly yeah. at this season. Yes, yes. Order the champagne down if you can. If they can. <laughs> There's a lot of good non-alcoholic options coming out in supermarkets now. Yes, that's true. Well, which is quite interesting. Let's just quickly recap on the clinical trials. What are they actually trialling? Okay, so the clinical trials that I'm aware of in Australia are looking at statins because of their anti-inflammatory effect primarily. There are other trials that are being developed to to look at, again, down-regulating your immune system by a number of um, immune blockers, if you like. And how would a GP find out about where these trials are in order to refer a patient? That's a process in in development, and it's it's an extremely good point. We sorely need a, a website that can serve as a resource centre, not only for the information I've already conveyed, but secondly, to help direct those patients who are interested in trials to the appropriate facility. If a GP did say, hey, Professor Brew, can you help me out? Would you be able to direct them in the right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sure, sure, sure. Definitely. So they could could contact you? Yeah, yeah. Look, happy to. I guess the mechanism when there is no website that's really serving that function would be for various GPs to go to centres that are known to have this interest. And there are several centres around the country. 
Is there anything else that you'd like to say about this topic for our GP audience? I guess the GPs that are listening to this are the converted, but I think not just amongst GPs, but amongst healthcare workers in general, that there are sort of two camps. One, where they are cognizant of the issue, appreciate it and recognize it. The other camp is it's all been overhyped and is of no consequence, should be trivialized if not ignored. I think they're wrong. Thank you so much, Professor Bruce Brew, for joining us today in the Tea Room and sharing your insights on brain fog and long COVID. Pleasure. That was Professor Bruce Brew, President of the International Society for Neurovirology and Head of the Neurosciences Program at St Vincent's Hospital in Sydney. Before we speak with our expert on hair loss and long COVID, I'll give you an update on the parliamentary inquiry. Now, in the last long COVID special episode, I interviewed paediatrician Dr. Mike Freelander. He's a member of the House of Representatives and chair of the health committee that runs all the parliamentary inquiries about health. He said an issues paper would be out before Christmas and that a full report would be done by March next year. Well, he was good to his word, I'm happy to say, and the issues paper was released about a week ago. The main themes that have emerged include a lack of consistent definition of long COVID. Another theme is the lack of reliable and consistent data. The committee also said in the issues paper that primary care will play an important and central role in supporting people with long COVID. So check out our long COVID special number six, where Dr. James Zhang joined us in the tea room to describe how he runs his long COVID clinic at a family practice in Sutherland on Sydney's outskirts. And stay tuned early next year when the Medical Republic will host a long COVID webinar just for GPs talking all about how to manage long COVID patients in your practice. Submissions to the Parliamentary Inquiry closed on the 18th of November, but you can still make a late submission if you hurry. I'll put the email address in the show notes for that. Now on to hair loss and long COVID. It was a hot topic at last month's World Congress on Hair Research in Melbourne. Dermatologist Dr. Dimitri Wall flew from Ireland to chair the COVID-19 session at the World Congress and I managed to nab him for a tea room chat. Dr. Dimitri Wall is a consultant dermatologist who also loves data. He's got access to a lot of it too. We kind of jump straight into the start of our conversation just after I asked him how he had such insight into long COVID and hair loss. So from our perspective, we had this infrastructure that was developing. We had supported the development of the UK's National Atopic Dermatitis Registry. We had developed a registry for the rare blistering sort of spectrum disorders called epidermolysis bullosa. And then I had been talking with the Australians about developing this global network of patient registries for alopecia areata. And then COVID hit. And what we started to see was this really big concern in dermatology where there's hair conditions and atopic dermatitis and other conditions where you sometimes need to put people on immunosuppressive medications. And the question that hits you instantly when you think about a virus that has resulted in significant morbidity and mortality is, are we going to increase people's risk of having severe COVID if we continue having them on their medications? So the immunosuppressant drugs are something that Mm. are generally prescribed for people who have different conditions relating to hair loss. 
it's usually at the severe end of the spectrum. But then we don't want to submit people to extra vulnerability when we've got something no. like COVID around. And will that increase their risk of an infection or an acute infection? That's the concern. And, you know, if you think of the really vulnerable groups, people whose immune systems aren't working well, you're essentially pushing people more into that spectrum when you're on these conditions. So the big concern initially was what happens? This is also relevant. A lot of rheumatology patients. And that's what we found. As we started asking the question about dermatology, we realized that other groups in dermatology and elsewhere were asking the same questions about their patients, like rheumatology, inflammatory bowel disease. And we we started to realize that actually, for example, if you have a patient who has severe psoriasis and they're on an immunosuppressant, by taking them off some of their immunosuppressants, you actually risk having more severe COVID. So the actual control of their disease seemed to be more significant in terms of stabilizing them as they got hit with COVID-19 compared to the effect of an immunosuppressant. So did you find that the immunosuppressant was less of a risk than you had potentially thought originally? Well, it would be lovely to, to be able to ultimately say we were able to group them all into one cluster, but actually we started to realize this you know, like individual patients, everybody's different. And while they may fit to a degree within a certain range of characteristics, there was huge disparity. So people who are on systemic steroids, they were at higher risk of getting severe COVID, whereas one of the breakthrough medications for the therapy of alopecia areata, baricitinib, it had actually started to be used as a therapy in ICUs alongside other medications and with those seemed to reduce time in ICU by a day. So we had this really strange but you know interesting collection of data suggesting that some of the immunosuppressants could actually be beneficial. Some of them may be more damaging. And that's what registries started to define as giving people a degree of awareness of the circumstances, the patients, where they could or shouldn't be prescribed. And it, it had quite significant impacts on how medication was prescribed, how patients were managed. Dimitri, there are some clinically valuable pieces of information that you could share about your research. What would be the key points? The most recent thing is the Secure Alopecia Registry, which kind of clusters together a lot of data about the impact of COVID on hair and the impact of hair on COVID. I think the, the first thing to say is that my wife, my brother are GPs and I know how tuned in they are. And a lot of them already know a huge amount about this. One of the things that I suppose can be quite upsetting is this phenomenon of what some people have called COVID hair, which is that COVID seems to induce hair shedding that can be very dramatic in people. And what we initially found at the start of the, the pandemic was that it tended to take about two months for this to kick in and you would have people start to present saying, I'm having huge amounts of hair fall. And, you know, you you can look at it as as hair fall and say, well, you know, COVID has done some far more concerning things. But one of the things that we know is that hair shedding in patients tends to have huge implications. It tends to occupy a huge degree of their mind. It tends to be very, very concerning. And part of the reason it does that is it, as you start to see hair fall, it tends to distort your identity. So you often find people who are extremely upset. And the good guidance is, is that although there are some signs that suggest that this increase in hair shedding is happening sooner after COVID, and it doesn't happen in everyone. But as this kicks in, it does stop. It can 
typically lasts for about six weeks based on some of the data we saw, but then it, it tends to grow back after that. So one of the really reassuring things is that if you have somebody who comes in and says, I'm having huge degrees of hair loss, it's just coming out all over, not as individual clumps and patches. And the first question is, did you have COVID? And if they're saying, yes, I've had it in the last one to three months, there's a very good chance that it's been induced by the COVID. And the nice thing is, is although it's really upsetting, it's going to get better again. And the next thing they'll want to know is, is there anything that we can take to stop it from getting worse? And the answer in that regard is, what you're looking at is the kind of an event that's happened already. And for the vast majority of patients, it's a case of it, it, the horse has bolted and it's a case of supporting the patient through it. If you find that it's at a very early stage, there has been some data discussed by other people that suggests that a strong topical steroid onto the scalp may help reduce and may help recover the patient. There is a question about whether the medication regain can help, but that's probably something that's, again, that takes a little bit of time to work. So when people ask, should I use regain? I don't think it's going to play a huge, huge role. The main thing is going to be reassurance. The, the other question is, is that sometimes with, with this COVID, it actually reveals that the patient has other hair loss issues. And that's something to just keep in the back of your mind that that's the case. And how would you distinguish that? What you're really looking at is what is the primary concern at that point. And if it's a diffuse hair shedding, you know it's most likely due to COVID. And what you'll see happen is, is that things will settle down. Things will start to come back. And when the patient comes back at that point, if there's still concerns or if they're starting to see that their general hair loss pattern has changed significantly. So coming out in clumps. Well, clumps is more where you see patches emerge. That's more consistent with alopecia areata. And there is a suggestion that that has increased in frequency during the pandemic. There's always been this question about what triggers alopecia areata. We still don't know the answer, but uh, viruses. And, you know, we've had reports of patients having alopecia areata following COVID, even following vaccination. So when you start to see little patches emerge, that's more in keeping with alopecia areata. Usually there are other conditions, but more likely, and we have seen the instance of that increasing. And that's something that in the first case, you know, the reassuring data is, is that a lot of patients who get small areas of alopecia areata tend to improve within about six months. It's about 40% of patients. By a year, 60 Is that with treatment? No, that's just they tend to improve by, by, yeah, by spontaneously. By a year, we expect to see that about 66% of patients who get it will have, will have resolved. And I suppose it's the patients who have a more rapid trajectory, patients who have more extensive disease, where there's larger areas or patients who have completely lost total scalp hair or scalp and body hair. They're the patients who are likely to have a more difficult course and who you might need to think about other therapies. If you have access to a dermatologist who treats alopecia areata, that can be helpful because sometimes injections of steroids, it's a small area, can be useful. I suppose one of the big discussions at the moment is that as new therapies and this breakthrough therapy that's in the class of medications called JAK inhibitors, that is making a huge difference to patients with that more severe alopecia areata or that more progressive alopecia areata. And actually, that's what our other registry is 
starting to focus on. This is a, a global collaboration that's started with a pilot phase in Melbourne, Dublin, and Italy. It's collected just over 600 patients in the last eight months of that pilot. And the questions that we're sort of asking are, how effective is it? How safe is it in the long run? And also compared to the existing therapies, how effective is it? How safe is it? Rheumatologists use JAK inhibitors with patients. How much crossover are you having or research collaboration are you having with the field of rheumatology? Rheumatology, it's quite interesting, actually. At an international level, we haven't specifically gone to rheumatology. But I think, you know, my experience of a dermatologist is I've had a number of patients being referred to me from rheumatologists saying, look, I've got a patient with this condition. I'm aware that they also have alopecia areata. And, you know, even though the rheumatological condition is something that if it's not treated may result in them having to be confined to a wheelchair, I think it's really upsetting them. Is their hair loss? And I wonder, can you give me any guidance on how I might best prescribe to be considerate of that? So I have a number of patients back in Ireland who are seeing me and they're seeing a rheumatologist and there's back and forth communication saying, Look, you know, maybe we can alter the dose in this way to best cover both. Just literally in the last couple of days, we had an article accepted for publication. And you don't normally guess in the journal, this will be published. You don't normally get a case report where it's just one patient who gets reported. And the, the reason this was reported was because patient came along to me and said, look, I've had really bad alopecia areata. I've also got Crohn's disease. And I had said, there's this emerging group of medications. If there is one that also covers Crohn's, perhaps your gastroenterologist may see a clinical trial where both can be covered. I, I didn't hear anything for a year, but I got an email to say, I just want to thank you. I have all my hair back. I got on that clinical trial and all the hair grew back. And as it turned out, it's a medication that has never been described in the area of alopecia areata before. So that the message really with this case report was, it's another example of one of this family of medications called JAK inhibitors that seem to be very effective or can be quite effective in treating alopecia areata. But the message is to be aware of your colleagues in other areas that prescribe these medications and make sure that you keep your ear to the ground, that you discuss with them these coming through. Because what we're going to see in the coming years is, is that there is more overlap between these conditions and how they're treated. Let's talk about long COVID specifically. So under the World Health Organization, definition of long COVID, which in itself is a bit as nebulous as the disease, hair loss would fall into the category of a long COVID symptom, mm-hmm. something that is three months generally past an acute infection. Is Are people with long COVID having ongoing hair loss? The discussion that we had at the World Congress in the session I chaired on COVID-19, a number of people were reporting through that that initial description of three months, which has classically always been the case when a virus or illness or large loss of weight or large surgery that's resulted in a large amount of blood loss, overactive thyroid disease, resulted in hair shedding about three to six months afterwards. And what people are starting to report back is that with the new variants of covid it may be that that's getting shorter and people are reporting it even after weeks. We didn't specifically ask patients in our registry how long did the long COVID last for, but there was a very large group of people who had ongoing problems with it. So initially what happens is, is the hair starts falling and there's this actively 
increased quantity of hair falling and then that tends to subside but having shed a large amount of hair the impact of that is that that has to grow back and hair grows back in about a centimeter a month so if you have a woman who's got exceptionally long hair there's going to be a large long-term impact on how long it takes so if you are to look really closely you'll see that the number of hairs in any given area will start increasing but the actual volume of hair loss takes a lot longer. And that depends on how long your hair was to start with. So that's right. part of the reason yeah, why yeah, men won't it. notice this as much. Their hair is shorter and it's it's quicker to, to recover. So we, we don't yet know whether hair loss in long COVID is as extensive and long lasting, partly because it does take a long time for hair to grow back. It does. But that is one of the messages is to say to people, the, the evidence that we have, says is really reassuring in terms of if you get a large amount of hair shedding from COVID-19, it's going to recover. And it's, you know, you should see that happen over the next few months. It's, it's unusual to see it happen for a longer period of time. And then following that, it's a case of that new hair coming through. And one of the ways this, the patients can often get a little bit of reassurance is that if they look at their hair as they look in the mirror, they'll see that there's this cohort of fine little hairs all over about the same length starting to grow through again. That's all the hair recovering starting to come through again. And as a doctor looking down, if you see a large group of this small hair the same length, you can tell the patient, look, I can already see the signs of recovery. That's quite reassuring. There are some people who, many people across the world, who have had long COVID for two, even going into two and a half years. Do we have reported cases of ongoing hair loss for these people? Yeah, I've certainly had patients come in who have unfortunately been in that position. And it's kind of the other things going on. It, it, in terms of specifically hair, it's more difficult to say. You know, we have seen an increase in instance of other conditions and, you know, whether COVID may have been the trigger for that becoming an episodic problem or a persistent problem that goes on. It's a very hard thing to define. So I don't have a great answer for that question. And it's one of the problems with our data set even is trying to interpret it. There's so many different variables. It's exceptionally difficult to pin down and tie down that to COVID. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Wall, for your contributions to the Tea Room today and have a safe journey back to Ireland. Thank you so much. Really appreciate being asked to be part of us. And thank you for having me in your beautiful country again. Come again soon. That was Dr. Dimitri Wall, consultant dermatologist and health informatician at the National and International Skin Registry Solutions in Dublin, Ireland. Final guest today is Dr. Bruce Patterson, former head of virology at Stanford University and founder of InceldX. He's a co-director of a long COVID treatment center in the USA. And as a viral pathologist, Dr. Patterson has been researching the immune sequelae of chronic infections for over 25 years. And we spoke with Dr. Patterson about InceldX in the second episode of our long COVID special series way back at the beginning of the year. Well, the news is InceldX launched yesterday in Australia. They're immensely popular in the United States within the long hauler cohort. 
You only need to read the social media to hear stories of people who have had great success with the treatment. However, Inceldx has received criticism for not yet having run a clinical trial, but evidently one is in the wings, ready to start next year. Now, this interview with Dr. Patterson will hopefully spark more conversation, and I'm keen to see how it plays out next year, especially for the hundreds of thousands of Australians who have long COVID. So thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Patterson. Can you tell us a little about a little bit about what's being offered to the Australian market as of this week? Yes, it's very exciting. We, through a partnership with Helios, we have launched our entire long COVID program uh, in Australia, which includes obviously the two key tests, the incel kind test, which is now DEIV marked in Europe. So it's the first long COVID test with any regulatory approval. And also our quant S1 quantification test, which is applicable to both long COVID post-vaccination individuals who have long COVID-like symptoms. So as of Monday, there is a Australia button on our covidlonghaulers.com website where you can register and the site will take you through all the numerous steps to register, get tested, and then eventually sign up for telemedicine with expert physicians who have been, like myself, talking to patients and and helping them get treated for almost two years now. So normally before rolling out or, or scaling up for mass use, we'll look for the evidence from a randomized controlled trial with you know, appropriate inclusion criteria, exclusion criteria, outcomes, et cetera. What are we basing this on at InceltX? Well, again, we have over 40,000 patients are registered. The bottom line is long COVID has no RCTs anywhere to provide any information on how to treat these patients. So we are, as a group, relying on repurposed approved medications uh, to help long COVID sufferers to get better, whether it's symptom-based or, in our case, looking at the actual cause that we identified in vascular inflammation over two years ago to try and alleviate the vascular inflammation and the symptoms that accompany it. So that's our approach. And you know, the the bottom line is we have we're very excited to be in the initial planning phases of our RCT and it should happen very soon after the after the first of the year. Okay, so you'll be kicking off on a clinical trial in early twenty twenty three. Absolutely. And is that for Maravioc and Prevastatin? Uh yeah, Maravrock and Prevastatin will right. be the first combination. Great. So what has been the uptake in the USA? I know you've got a huge base of long haulers, something like 60,000 or 80,000 people who are connected to InceltX. That's about right. Again, I think we were the first and the earliest to, number one, identify an immune signature in long COVID to separate those individuals from you know, patients with acute COVID. Then we went on to do further algorithms that we also published that allow us to distinguish between long COVID, Lyme in the United States, I know it's not a big deal in Australia, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, and of course, acute COVID, which many long haulers are in their second or third round of infections. And the reason that's so critical is what's happening in the United States, certainly, is patients are going to their physicians and saying, I have, I have fatigue, post-exertional malaise, and brain fog, which is all over the 
media now as being, you know, three of the most important symptoms in long COVID. And early on, when we identified those symptoms and our diagnostic tests, other clinicians were saying, well, we don't need a diagnostic test. We know what the symptoms are in long COVID. And and in actuality, uh, nothing could be further from the truth because Lyme disease, post-treatment Lyme disease, for instance, fatigue, brain fog, post-exertional malaise, muscle and joint pain, same symptoms as long COVID. ME-CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, same symptoms as long COVID. Fibromyalgia, same symptoms as long COVID. The long COVID discussion is now resonating with individuals out there who have been suffering from Lyme or chronic fatigue. And, and, and they're saying, I have those symptoms. So they go to their physicians and say, two things. I have those symptoms and I had COVID. I must have long COVID. And that's the key to precision diagnostics because yes, they may have long COVID, but they may also have an exacerbation of Lyme, an exacerbation of chronic fatigue syndrome and the underlying antecedent infections there. And the the issue underlying all of this is from a paper that we published in 2020, which showed that acute COVID causes profound immunosuppression. In some individuals with the original strains, that immunosuppression was almost as bad as what I saw, you know, when I started my research career in HIV AIDS in the early 90s. Only The only difference being it was the CD8 T cells, not the CD4 T cells that were extremely low. There's T cell exhaustion, meaning These cells have been activated and trying to fight off, you know, the virus for so long that they actually become exhausted. And then the last part of it is that the cells that are supposed to fight off these viral infections don't make the proper proteins to actually fight those infections off. So some total is patients with acute COVID have immunosuppression and they're susceptible to reactivation of herpes family viruses like EBV, CMV, HSV, shingles, etc. And patients who may have Lyme who don't even know it all of a sudden get worse. So if I put on the general practitioner's cap, which I do so very gently, one of the concerns that with this kind of a diagnostic is that it might separate the patient from the general practitioner who also, one of the things we're finding with long COVID, as you would know, is that there are some other very serious issues that can be exacerbated or created that long COVID might mask. And it's only through really a full investigation and analysis that these cardiac issues or et cetera can be dealt with. If someone does a diagnostic and then has telehealth through your organization, they could potentially overlook some of these other more serious issues within a person's condition. I absolutely agree. And that's not at all our model. And I think there's a lot of confusion around that. We're not trying to usurp patients. What we're trying to do is use our our diagnostics, but most importantly, our diagnostic algorithms that we've developed to add to information. The general practitioners are invited to the telemedicine consult that they have with us. All we're doing is saying, okay, here's a test report. 
um, that you probably haven't seen before. It has very important information regarding, you know, either your long COVID, Lyme, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, acute COVID, etc. And, you know, let us weigh in based on our huge patient base, which have been threaded through machine learning and AI to derive all kinds of additional information to help the general practitioner manage that patient. We never step on, on that side of the fence and say to the general practitioner, X, Y, and Z needs to be done for other conditions that may exist. We absolutely agree they are the expert as it relates to their particular patient. With regard to Moravioc and Prevostatin, they're being used off-label for treatment of long COVID. How does that fit in within the Therapeutic Goods Association through now pharmaceutical benefit scheme, et cetera, in Australia? Well, again, you know, we are just recommending is going on in these patients and giving essentially the general practitioner of a list of what may or may not work in that particular patient. We are not saying, you know, it's Moravirac or Prevostatin or BUST, you know, for your particular patient. But based on our knowledge and, like I said, our algorithms, we use a very targeted approach. So, for instance, we have a paper that's out for peer review right now that says fatigue. Everybody has fatigue in long COVID and in, in post-Lyme, even fibromyalgia. We know from all of our data and mining our data using AI that the, one of the most important biomarkers for fatigue is TNF-alpha, right? So we know that if we target TNF-alpha with a particular drug in a very targeted approach, fatigue should resolve. And we showed that with statistical significance in this paper that's out for peer review. Did that have an impact on neurological dysfunction as well, like brain fog? Absolutely. And in fact, in that paper is also a, a neurologic symptom score. So what we did in this paper, which is very interesting, we put patients on therapy with Moravirac and Prevostatin. We've now done that in a larger study with over 300 patients with even better results, obviously, because of a larger cohort. But what we did was, number one, we looked at symptom scores that are used for clinical trials all over the world, fatigue, dysautonomia, neuro, cardiac, dyspnea, which is shortness of breath. And we said after six to 12 weeks, um, compare your pre-treatment with your post-treatment symptom scores. And all five of those symptom scores went down with statistical significance. Okay. Then we had our statisticians, and this was a key aspect, probably the most important aspect of the study, is we asked our statistician, what are the markers in our panel, which was also chosen by, correlates best with improvement in fatigue symptom score, neurologic symptom score, dysautonomia symptom score. And that's where we saw statistical significance between targeting a particular cytokine and improvement in symptoms, especially fatigue, brain fog, and uh, post-exertional malaise. And that's 
what is critical. We know that there's correlation. If you drop those biomarkers back to normal, there'll be an improvement in symptoms. Now, is this a new paper or is this one that has been lined up from last year or earlier this year? Because I think that was one of the criticisms cast at the first paper. It was such a small group. So you've gone back and pulled the bigger group. Yes. And then, of course, they all ask about controls. But there was an informative paper that just came out that said patients with long COVID, over 50% of them don't get better without intervention. Meaning one of the biggest questions out there is, oh, if I just let this go, am I going to be better? What sort of intervention are they talking about? Therapeutic intervention. There's no, your approach is the only drug therapy, apart from the targeted approach to specific symptomatic issues. It, it is, but there's there's other groups that are using low dose naltrexone and and other strategies. You know, fluvoxamine was popular for a while. That's you know, kind other, of gone to the wayside though. It has as as ivermectin. So, you know, the bottom line is there's a number of different ways that patients are being managed. Most long COVID clinics worldwide treat on a symptomatic basis. Mm. In other words, if a patient goes to a long COVID center at a university, they go to a cardiologist, they go to yes. a pulmonologist, they go to a neurologist, they go to a rheumatologist, they go to a gastroenterologist, and they all weigh in on their own symptom complexes, and they get treated on a symptom basis, as opposed to looking at some of the pathways that we initially identified that are now being corroborated in the literature you know, vascular inflammation and endothelial persistence of the S1 protein. Those actually came out of our early work two years ago and are now finally being operated, which is, you know, a a wonderful thing. I'm just wondering with your huge customer base, why hasn't a clinical trial been done earlier now as opposed to you've been getting resistance and people have been saying, well, it was just expensive diagnostic, you know, wouldn't that be the best way to say, hey, this works and this is the proof. Of course. Of course. We, and you know what? We want nothing more than what they want. Okay. But you use two words that are key expense of taking a drug. We're not a big pharma company. Yeah. So the expense of taking a drug through clinical trials is not trivial. Although with an already approved drug, there is a pathway. That doesn't involve phase one, phase two, phase three. Okay. Yes. But the most important one is making the drug. You have to arrange for a drug supply. You know, Maraviroc and Prevastatin are both generics right now, meaning anyone can make those. For a company such as ours to go secure manufacture of drug that will meet FDA standards that we can use in clinical trials is what we've been working on for all that time that people have been, you know, criticizing us for not starting. Okay. So the money to do the trial and the most importantly, getting our own access to the drug, because at the end of the day, that's going to allow us to offer drug at a much lower price than what's currently available. Have you consulted or connected with long COVID clinics in Australia? So I've given, I believe, two talks for different physicians groups in Australia that do see 
a significant number of long COVID patients, and we're very anxious to work with them. Like I said, the whole model of establishing the testing and our telemedicine there is with the sole purpose of engaging Australia's own physicians to take take part in what we're doing, to you know, to be part of the whole process. And we can't do it without them. So yes, it's extremely important. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, other than we're just really excited to be in Australia. We know, you know, at least 5% of everybody who's been infected by COVID, Australia is now long COVID. We know that there's at least 250,000 to 500,000 cases of MECFS in Australia. Lyme is non-existent, which will just make our algorithm easier. But, you know, there's a significant movement and, and there's an incredible base of knowledge in Australia that I think will allow this program to be extremely successful. Thank you, Dr. Bruce Patterson from IncelDX for joining us in the Tea Room today. That was Dr. Bruce Patterson, former head of virology at Stanford University and founder of IncelDX, a long COVID diagnostic and treatment center in the USA. I'm Wendy John. Thanks for joining me in the Tea Room. That was our final episode of the Tea Room for 2023. Thanks to our guest host this year, Francis Wilkins, to our editor at the Medical Republic, Penny Durham, and to the fabulous Victoria Nelson, who does post-production. My deep gratitude also goes to all the experts who have joined us this year, Spill on the Tea, about their field of passion. But most of all, Thanks to you for tuning in each week, sharing links to your colleagues and for your feedback throughout the year. Until next year, I wish you a merry and bright festive season and a really good break. I think after these past few years, you deserve it. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can search for us on your favourite podcast player and subscribe. Leave us a review if you like. If you have any news tips or want to chat, you can email me at wendy at medicalrepublic.com.au. The Tea Room is a production from the journalists at the Medical Republic. Visit us at medicalrepublic.com.au to keep up to date with all the latest news and views in general practice. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We love to keep you informed. Thanks for tuning in.